Welcome to the On The Way podcast, a podcast exploring a non-violent, non-dualistic, compassionate faith life. My name is Dom Fay, and uh, as we record here on a Tuesday morning, I do have Peter Cat in his office at the cathedral, um, but deceptively still looking like last episode, like he's in Spain on a lakeside. Peter, is is it doing things for your mental state that are working for you? It sure is. I'm feeling much better being in Spain, in my mind. <laughs> and uh, Sue is coming to us as well um, from, from her office. So you might need to, to compete with Peter. You might need to start finding some fun Zoom backgrounds as well. Yeah, I, I'm deciding I'm going for a realist kind of perspective. <laughs> and I'm fully feeling the grief that I didn't get my Scottish holiday. Um, well, look, we're, we're very excited today on the podcast because we do have Douglas Campbell joining us. Uh, he is a professor of New Testament at Duke Divinity School and the author of a number of books uh, about the Apostle Paul, among other topics as well. Most recently publishing Pauline Dogmatics, The Triumph of God's Love. Zooming in from North Carolina. Well, I was normally in North Carolina, but we have just heard in Vancouver currently um, some somewhat in lockdown. Douglas Campbell, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much. Great to be here. Sorry, I did. I wrote that earlier, as you can tell, the zooming in from North Carolina bit, and uh, forgot to amend it when we were chatting beforehand. And you told us you're currently in um, in Vancouver. I am. Yeah, I'm. I'm helping my son out. He's got long haul COVID. Mm. So uh, yeah, you know, sometimes when yeah, I'm a parent, right? So when children put the hand up, uh, I go, "Yo, I'm here." Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Probably just another sign of, um, you know, and we, we, we briefly discussed this before recording, but from our Australian context, some of the things that we don't quite, haven't quite experienced, haven't quite understood. Um, but, uh, but I mean, before we get into the subject of today's matter, I'd be interested to ask as someone who's working or has worked at a, um, you know, a Duke Divinity School over the past year, what, what has that context been like to experience a pandemic through? Oh, yeah. Interesting. Um, well, we've had to go completely virtual. So we've been very dispersed. So the experience is pretty much what I'm having now, what you're having, which is a lot of Zoom stuff, mm. which is better than nothing. But, uh, you know, uh, we talk a lot about embodiment at Duke, but now we're experiencing disembodiment. Mm. And it's actually making us realize, you know, all that stuff about embodiment was actually true. <laughs> you, you, really, you really want to get in the same room as people and uh, get the bounce, the energy that mm. they give you, because um, we all kind of live off that. And um, there is something kind of unnatural about being disembodied. So, uh, yeah. Um, which is not to diss the virtual format, which I'm very thankful for, <laughs> mm. just to acknowledge a few limitations. Absolutely. Well, look, hopefully we'll be able to replicate this conversation. I have a new conversation with you in person at one stage. But I'd love that. Yeah, it would be amazing. We're very excited, though, today about the scope of this conversation. Um, well, I, I, I will be honest from the outset, actually. Douglas, I mean, I, I am excited. And I know you're going to have amazing stuff on this, but when I hear the Apostle Paul come up generally through my life, I have cringed a little bit. He is not been, um, it's not been someone I have been rushing to dive into and, you know, have a Bible study about what Paul wrote about this. And I think that's, you know, there's many reasons behind that. I'm a, I'm a bit embarrassed admitting it in this context, but I, I imagine there'll be others who feel the same. Um, you know, that it's very normal. It's, so you come across this a lot? 
Yeah, well, that's that's the story of my life, and it's, right. it's the reason it's the reason for my life, which is poor guy has been kind of captured by the authoritarians, and um, so he's portrayed as this arch conservative, but he he was the, he was the radical liberal in the early <laughs> church. He he was the crazy, super progressive, super inclusive, shockingly inclusive figure. It said, oh, you know, all these people over here, we, we actually need to get them involved. God actually cares about them and loves them and has a wonderful plan for their life. And this is how it works. And um, it, it's it's just a catastrophe that we've lost that mm. and displaced him. So, I, I yeah, basically, I've spent my life trying to retrieve the, uh, the inclusive <laughs> Paul, the real Paul. Yeah. <laughs> kind of banish the authoritarian pool but but the authoritarians don't like what i'm doing so i get a lot of pushback can you let us know uh what your i guess how you fell in love with paul what your story was of of discovering this truth for yourself yeah great question um i was a doctoral student in canada in toronto uh, at the University of Toronto, and I thought I was going to study political philosophy and theology. I was Christian, um, but I thought it was kind of like some juicy combination of Marx and Hegel and Luther, maybe. And I, I, some guy told me that I needed to go and study, or at least take a course with this person, Richard Longnecker, um, at Wycliffe College who taught a course on Romans. So I wandered into this Romans course and it was so popular. They didn't have a lecture theater large enough to accommodate the class. They had to move all the chairs out of the dining hall every week. And this enormous man got up and began to speak about, about the Bible and Paul and, and Romans just in a way that I had never experienced before. I, I just sat and thought, I don't want to be like that guy. <laughs> I want to, this is what I want to do with my life. Now, unbeknownst to me, this had happened to a number of other people. There were strings of PhD students <laughs> captured. <laughs> I was one of them. <laughs> Started on Romans in 1985, and I've never managed to get away. Wow. Brilliant. Well, look, we're going to, over the course of this conversation, um, I guess, explore the the life-giving Paul that you talk about there. I, I'm so excited to um to jump into this. I'm, I'm because I, as I said, this is not something where I personally have found a heap of life historically, and and I'm I'm so excited to see where that is. I know you also write in your book, and we'll get to this a little later on. So this is a bit of a tease forward, but that you believe if Paul was around today, following the the logic of how he worked, he would be advocating for same-sex marriage. Um, totally, yeah, which, yeah, which Absolutely. is an amazing thing. No brainer. <laughs> I can't wait to unpack that a little later on in the conversation. Um, but but look, just as a as a starting point, then what is it about your framework for approaching Paul that is different, maybe to to what a lot of people are operating out of the authoritarian model? Yeah, yeah, great question. Um, a lot of this comes down to misreading the first part of Romans. Um, I would argue a lot of people get that wrong. Uh, because they expect Paul to be an authoritarian, so they read him that way. And there's a there's a subtle series of moves they make that turn into a very major theological error. They start off with an account of the gospel. You know, you probably all heard of the Romans Road or the four spiritual laws. Um, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So we, we start off with the problem 
that people face. We start off with mm. a God who has a problem with us. And what Bart would say is God's no. And then after kind of sorting ourselves out with God and getting rid of God's anger, then we get the yes, then we get the love. But the love is always for a small group, and it's framed by this judgment, this very, very harsh judgment. That's just completely wrong, okay? Right. That is wrong. If you read on in the letter and start later on, it's the other way around. We start off with a God who is for us in Jesus Christ, who speaks a yes to us, and we understand any judgment, any negativity is framed by that unconditional commitment, which is revealed by someone who sends his only beloved child to die for us while we are still hostile. Yeah. Mm. So if we start in the right place in Romans, which is not at the start of the letter, we end up with a very, very different theological program. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's what I do. That's <laughs> the um the the tricky element of um of today's you know maybe culture to to just quote a Bible verse out of context and copy and paste it here or you know put it on yeah. a, a placard and use it there. So you know obviously um, Romans one has been used um, against LGBTIQ people against women. It, it is a very it does feel like a very mean almost like the strict headmaster you know outlining what it's will be allowed and won't be allowed. Worse than that. <laughs> It's, it's the meanest passage in the Bible. Yeah, right, right. And it's it's God. God's not a strict headmaster. He's a death penalty judge. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, it's nasty. But you'll notice that Jesus never comes up there. <laughs> uh, we get a passing mention of Jesus in 216b, which is probably a parenthesis. The Holy Spirit gets mentioned parenthetically halfway through chapter 3. We don't get any Jesus language till 322, hmm. uh, which has got to be a it's got to be a red flag. Because um, whenever Paul is talking in his own voice, um, Jesus is coming up every other phrase. So something's off. Right. So what, what is Paul doing in Romans 1 then? What's, how do you view that passage? Uh, I suggest that that's actually a Socratic argument in which he's undermining somebody in terms of their own assumptions. So it begins off, it begins by, um, it, it's, it's almost like a comedy routine. Now, I'm, I'm not a up-to-date enough with Australian culture to know who your top comedians are at the moment, but you know how they parody politicians and imitate their mannerisms and their voices. So there's a paragraph uh, where Paul is imitating someone he's having a serious problem with, Hmm. who's going to be at Rome. And and Paul is writing a letter to try to run interference on the arrival of this particular person who's, who's kind of pompous and aggressive and harsh, has a harsh side. And so Paul rolls out a paragraph of his stuff and then basically tears it apart in terms of its own assumptions. So the the beauty of this approach is Paul doesn't go in frontally and he doesn't go, he doesn't have to go in and say, look, you're just a moron. I mean, I think the guy he's dealing with is not a moron. Uh, But Paul's able to say, look, you're just not thought through here, buddy. Okay, mm. let's just expose some of the things you're involved with, show how it kind of falls apart. And the way it falls apart is very significant because the guy is probably a Messianic Jew, very, very um, committed to Judaism. And Paul shows how if you start with Romans 1, you erase Judaism and any necessity for Judaism. And that's going to hurt a guy who's a Jew. Mm. 
It's a very, very effective thing to say to somebody who's competing with you for the affection of the pagans and saying they need to convert to certain Jewish practices. Very effective. But if you lose that specific context and you take that and you universalize it, what do you do as a Christian church? You go, oh, Paul starts at this gospel by erasing Jews. Now, that move has had very, very significant and very tragic consequences for church history. Mm. Um, that is a bad, bad, bad thing that happens there. And it's it's unnecessary. <laughs> we don't have to do it. We shouldn't do it. Let's not do it anymore. Let's just <laughs> get a little bit more civilized here, a little bit more in touch with what was really going on. Yeah, it's it's fascinating when you. I mean, it's just another chapter in the um the great long story of how different the Bible is when you actually apply the context. Um, which of <laughs> course, right. is, you know, is not something most of us are, or many of us are given growing up. Is is context? We are just given the passage, and then whoever our faith leader at the time is will speak for twenty minutes, and they might not know the context either. So again and again, we we sort of delve into this 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 deeper hole. Uh, do you think if, I mean, we, we often talk about, um, you know, I think people often talk about if Jesus was here today, what would he think of the tradition that had come out of his name? Do you think if Paul was here today and, um, and sat through a lecture on Romans one or a sermon on Romans one, how would he respond? Oh, I think he would be gutted. Um, mm. oh, it's, it's just so not what he was about. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, it's it's pretty tragic, actually. <laughs> yeah. It's pretty tragic. And and you know, don't don't be under any illusions that this alternative way of reading Romans is is is, is sort of dominating and catching on like wildfire. Uh, um, it's hard to get scholars to agree with you about a new reading when keeping their jobs depends on them not understanding what you're suggesting. Um, and this is this is the situation in a lot of seminaries and positions around North America. But Australia and New Zealand, I hope, are in a slightly more uh, liberational, liberated space, able to hear things in a different way. Do you think that is the, the situation here in Australia, Peter? Um, Australia would be a mixed bag, I think. I think there are, um, I think there are places, parts of Australia that are absolutely longing for um, this to happen so that the God, so the people people understand. I think there are a lot of people who understand that Jesus was on about a really inclusive project, mm -hmm. and sometimes we find ourselves battling with parts of the scriptures that seem to be taking us in a way that we, deep in our hearts, know is not right. So I think there are lots of places where uh, Douglas's reading will be welcomed because it actually allows us to integrate the everything uh, into a more mm. generous form of Christianity. <clears throat> there are other places where um, the exact opposite is happening, where the, the, the inclusive bits are being trampled over because they, you know, in those parts of the, of the, of the Australian context, the, those parts um, uh, are not welcome. And so uh, we use you know, the, the, in those parts of the tradition, uh, things like Romans 1 are used to trump everything else. It, become, it becomes the pivotal and defining text <clears throat> that everything else gets. Yeah, it's incredible. 
Yeah, it's incredible. Um, I think you, something you said earlier on, Don, was really provocative, I thought, where you said, you know, in our modern culture, we kind of do this, right? And what, what's going on there is a theological failure, which is we haven't been taught to recognize when we're projecting our own ideas yeah. onto God mm. and making God in our own image, which is one of the most basic things the Bible talks about not doing. And uh, what we're doing is projecting our own politics, our own authoritarianism, our own love of control. And, and our own self-hatred. Yeah. yeah, our anxieties about people who are different from us. We project all this stuff onto God, uh, find the bits in the Bible that we think agree with it, and roll it out and say, this is what the gospel's about. And what was lost in there is the control that's meant to be coming from Jesus. He is the control. He's the one who kind of runs all of this show. And if we're not lining up with him, we've got something wrong. Mm. Yeah. So, so Douglas, when you are, when you have a new intake of, of students, let's say, and, and it's the first lecture about Paul and um, you know that you're going to be talking to a room of people who are probably coming from vastly different backgrounds and, um, you know, traditions how do you introduce the man, Paul? What do, how do you start the conversation? Yeah, that's a, that's a very good question. I've tried lots of different things, but maybe if I could just say for the moment, um, you know, everybody in the room actually usually is committed to Jesus on some level, in some way. And, and most people, conservative and liberal alike, they are actually committed to the Lord. They're there because they believe in God and, and everybody signs off on the creeds and on Jesus and all this kind of stuff. So I, I start with the stuff that we hold in common and I give them an account of the gospel, which flows from a loving God. And after you've kind of laid that out um, and, and invited people to be really committed to that, you show that it actually still gives you ways of navigating right and wrong that are very important and effective. Uh, people are in a slightly more secure place to hear when you come along and say, well, you know, this is the good stuff. We're all agreed here. Now, when we go over here, gosh, let's have another look at that. It's not actually helping us. It's, it's kind of getting in the way of what we've all just realized is really good <laughs> and that opens up a conversation that um that i have not been able to have when i've just gone in hard on the wrong stuff when when i've let off which i maybe as a young guy you know more aggressive more direct i'm like okay first of all we've got to deal with the stuff that's wrong i go in on that and, and people get defensive understandably they feel judged and they can't hear what what I'm trying to say about Paul, and they can't hear Paul. So, mm. yeah, but, but building out from the love of God revealed through Jesus Christ it tends to be a very strong and effective starting point. I think. <laughs> <laughs> I think that that's a uh, also starting with that more expansive story thing. With something we've been talking a bit about amongst some of our um, clergy friends here is how do you when we have such divides within the church, how do we begin with a more expansive story? But I think Douglas, one of the things you just picked up by in starting there, you, you kind of expose some of the fears and the relativism was one of the fears that you're actually exposing in what you just said, that, that people are afraid 
that there is no um, there's no right, wrong, moral compass, and and yet that's that in taking an inclusive uh, vision of Paul's writings, that that's what he was saying. And of course, Paul was no relativist at all. And, right. and I guess putting right. that that to bed when as people start to tell their expansive story um, of of Christ in their own way, some of those fears about oh, but does that mean you know and can yeah. can be can right. surface? Yeah. Right, right. No, I think that's exactly right. Yeah, and um, we haven't often when people flee from the conservative paradigm. God sometimes goes out, you know, the baby goes out with the bathwater. We haven't always done a great job of, of, of articulating what it is we have that's problematic, the problems we have with a more conservative authoritarian approach and how we're offering a very constructive alternative, which, which is really well articulated and has things to say about boundaries and what's right and what's wrong. But um, really thinking out, thinking about those things and how they flow out of the risen Christ. That's the bit that we haven't taught people to do very well a lot of the time. As you say, Suzanne, it's, it's often, uh, we often try and answer ethical questions with rules. Mm. Yeah. Rules, laws, <laughs> punishments. <laughs> These are the things we're comfortable with. <laughs> it's uh, not how God actually wanted to set stuff up. Yeah. You know, Douglas, I don't. I think you're going to um, want to put your head in your hands when you hear what I'm about to say. But I was in a conversation with um, a, a friend a while ago who, m- more conservative than I am, who their belief was that from reading Paul, Paul would have voted for Trump. Um, and this was a, this is this conversation. A lot of people like that. Yeah. Well, this is the conversation we got in that that they were saying you can see what clearly matters to Paul is that society doesn't slip away, that we don't, you know, have all these moral failures that, you know, and this seems to be... Because he's, he's a paragon of someone who's risen above <laughs> moral failure. Yeah, well, well, yes, but but this is the, you know, this is the... I mean, in some senses, then, it's, it's as infuriating and unbelievable that Paul has come to stand against what he originally was doing in the exact same way we always say that Jesus, in a sense in this world seems to stand against in the way he's spoken about what he was originally doing. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Things are pretty far gone actually. Um, what, I mean, I, I've been studying this whole phenomenon pretty carefully in a mixture of dismay, horror, wry amusement, mainly horror, um, because there are just a ton of Christians who buy into this sort of rhetoric and you, you're asking yourself, what, what is it? that's resonating between their Christian tradition and all this kind of political nonsense, because there's a very potent marriage there. And it does mm-hmm. come back to the, the question that we started with. What, what has become apparent is the wrong view of Paul, this, this view that we're all worried about, the authoritarian Paul, it's toxic. And if you really invest in it, you base your gospel on an othering operation. The basis of what you do, your starting point is is really a, a particular constituency that you have to scapegoat and you define yourself against this constituency. Uh, now, that's a very, very toxic mindset to occupy. It goes in search of constituencies to scapegoat. Yeah. Mm. Uh, does terrible things to them and feels justified in doing it. And, and that, that comes very directly out of Romans 1 and 2. And it's 
It's the other, you know, 60 chapters that Paul wrote that I want us to get more in touch with, where he's not doing that. (laughs) This is not pale wagging the dog. This is the the end of the tail on the tail wagging the dog. (laughs) (laughs) That's brilliant. Um, well, look, I, I I want to explore the the life giving um, stuff that we've missed along the journey. I, I do feel though it it would be um, it wouldn't be right to to go through this without acknowledging in some way Sue the the damage that this reading of Paul has caused in your own life. Um, you know, just thinking about the fact that you you have, as we've chatted about before, been in denominations that have not been okay with your leadership in a church that have you know very clearly grounded this stuff largely in Paul. So I'm just, I'm wondering as we talk about this, um, you, you must bring some Paul baggage to the table in terms of how it's been used as well. Well, I, I guess I had a, a bit of a enlightening moment. So where I fell in love with Paul once I, I sort of lo- had a different lens to look at Paul through, you know, so uh, once I could, once I kind of well, start getting rid of the books that he didn't write was helpful to me as well um in in uh reimagining paul but i I guess all the the questions about uh women keeping silent in church and uh the male headship which is often attributed inappropriately to paul's writings as well um but i had one story i had a dear lady who was really arguing against women's ordination in in the church I was in and was very vocal about it and had had submitted a very long sort of text about why to the AGM about why women should not why we shouldn't even be discussing this question because it had been resolved by Paul and uh and we sort of started to point out all of that well there's also things about you know covering your heads wearing hats and and the dear soul that she was honest enough to go you know you're right so she then went on a campaign for wearing hats and covering your head in church. <laughs> and, uh, so she was at least consistent, you know. Yeah. Uh, I, but I think the, you know, the, the way we have interpreted it has been just so harmful on so many levels um, of particularly gender and sexuality and just seeing ourselves as, the, you know, with the lack of diversity um, that is that is allowed if on certain authoritarian readings of Paul. So, yes, I've I've suffered from that reading personally, uh, but I think the whole church has been the less for for that, the diversity it's robbed robbed the church of. That's kind of what this is all about. It's don't re- read the Jesus stuff, and we've talked a lot about the wrong view of Paul, but the really exciting thing is the right view. Yeah, yeah. That's the cool stuff. Yeah. <laughs> and his his kind of pressure point, the point where he is so radical, was on um, race and ethnicity and inclusion of pagans. So he's getting involved with groups of people whom Jews regarded often as quite disgusting. And he's saying, hey, look, God loves them, brings them in kind of sensitively to their own cultural locations we don't even have to become jews here and he he provided a rationale for that and he worked very hard for it and on the one hand his radical inclusion almost split the church apart on the other hand he he was prepared to die to hold the church together as it reached out and spread and so 
The problem has come when we have not attended to the theological dynamics that drive that inclusive move and simply continue that inclusion. And where we have let little tiny passages written mm. 2,000 years ago tell us what to do when those passages are not reflecting this radically inclusive Jesus-centered uh, move. That's that's teasing out that that dynamic is really what getting hold of Paul in a, an accurate way is all about. And and you end up if you can do that, if you can learn how to do that, you end up with a very very constructive, inclusive dynamic, flourishing, creative, yeah, diversifying church. Yeah, and and it seems to me there's something dynamic about it's a dynamic reading of Paul. It's something about how is this what Paul is articulating moving today as opposed to Paul wrote the rules. Paul wrote the regulations. So let's see what he said. Well, it's I call it. I you know you'll understand this. My my American brothers don't. I call it eschatological surfing because um, the, the spirit is carrying us all the time into new constituencies, new networks, new places, um, and, and, and asking us to, to navigate into exciting, new, fresh, creative expressions uh, of what church is all about and, and, and wanting to unleash real creativity. And th this is what we're being summoned to. It's very exciting. We don't know exactly what lies ahead of us. Mm. We just know that it'll be kind of cool. It will also probably provoke conflict, but that's 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 kind of the flip side of the good stuff. Well, Douglas, I, I do want to I do want to ask because there's one reading of Paul which a lot of people have found um, life in, or at least uh, suggest they've found life in. And Sue and I both have come through this in the Lutheran tradition over many years, um, which is Paul's idea of justification by faith. It is something that people say has worked for some time, but a lot of others have felt this hasn't really worked, or or you know maybe. More to the point, it's placed the emphasis in the wrong part. Why do you think um, viewing Paul through the idea of justification by faith? Maybe, maybe if you could give a bit of background as to that, where that view, what that view is, and why it's unhelpful, that might be um, that might be really helpful for people. Yeah, yeah. Um, there are insights here, um, but what's happened is a couple of things have happened. One is. We've lost sight of the extent to which Jesus is the author of our faith. <laughs> He's the architect and the perfecter of our faith. And the, the translators of the authorized version actually got this. There are a couple of texts. We talk about the faith of Christ and our faith comes out of him. And, and if we only we hadn't lost sight of that, um, we would have realized that faith wasn't a work that we were being asked to do yeah. to get saved. Yeah. It was a it was a feature of our discipleship that we were being asked to deepen as we are shaped into the faithfulness of Jesus. And instead of being a burden, it, it would have been a challenge and also a delight. We would have been lifted into Jesus's faithfulness instead of having to kind of summon it for ourselves. Um, so I think that's important. The, the second thing that's important is this this comes on the back end of the kind of authoritarian preamble to Paul's gospel where we, we have this God that says no and that God is a God who relates to us um, through the fulfillment or the failure on our part to fulfill certain conditions and if we don't fulfill these conditions um, bad things will happen so that God relates to us 
um, as if our relationship with God is a contract, basically. And again, your perceptive question at the outset, this is our modern culture building God in terms of something we're very, very familiar with. Oh, we, how do we relate to God? Well, everybody relates to God on the basis of conditions and, and contracts. There's a contractual system here. And justification by faith is the, way, is, the way, is the way that we get a kind of a nicer contract in place so that at least some of us can get saved by fulfilling the demands of a contract because the, the first contract is so damn difficult. Nobody can actually fulfill the demands and we're all going to incur, incur the penalty for failure to fulfill it. Okay, so at least you've got a nice contract. You've got a kind of a nice God. But the problem is, it's still a contract. And where you have a contract, you have a God of justice uh, based on retribution. Um, and so that God will never love you. Mm, yeah. That God is not a God of love. Because a God of love is someone who relates to you even when you don't fulfill the conditions, yeah. in spite of not filling the conditions, even when you turn away like a foolish child, yeah. that God will be there for you. And that's a God of covenant. Uh, and we worship a God of covenant, not a God of contract. So I, you know, justification by faith has helped people. It's, it's been a blessing in certain situations. It probably did good things in the 1500s. It was liberating. It's it's not the gospel. <laughs> We're not saved by faith alone, no. which is a sentence that Paul never uses. Yeah. Never uses the word alone. <laughs> We're, we say Luther was so shocked by that he added in the word yeah. into Romans three twenty. <laughs> we are saved by Christ alone. That is how we get saved, uh, by his love and his mercy. Yeah, so much, much more could be said about this, but hopefully that's a teaser. <laughs> yeah, wow. No, that's, that's sorry, you've just uh, maybe healed a decade of um, church baggage for me, Douglas, so I'm just taking a deep breath there. But you're right, because it, it is just another way of setting up a framework of what it will take from you to belong, what it will take from you to access this good news. And then you end up with this competitive stuff around who's going to the most Bible studies and journaling the most about their faith. And, you know, basically it turns into another form of competition of proving worthiness. Who is the most faithful then? Which seems to be the game we've been doing all along. How do we prove our worthiness? Yeah, Tim, the gospel becomes about you and it becomes about your own resources, turns you in on yourself. Yeah. And, that is just not what it's about. We, we're not curved in on ourselves. God wants to open us out and say, I'm here to help. <laughs> I'm, I'm here to partner with you and I'm resourcing you. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, you're exactly right, Dom. This is, this is where we get, we get sent into it. We actually get sent into a bit of a narcissistic spiral. Yeah. This is not, this is never a good thing. <laughs> it's a self-destructive self one too, because, yeah. um, what happens, the number of people I have, particularly as they're facing their, their last few days, the number of people who have bought into that and then faith, faith becomes the equivalence of belief. And so then they wonder whether they've believed enough to have enough faith to have, you know, do, do they really have enough faith to have got over the line 
so that they're, yeah. they're, they're, they've been saved. And as they start to face sort of the, the prospect of uh, eternity and they've been ward, warding off this idea of a destructive, judgmental God, the, the sense of failure, um, you know, I've, I've had some of the most traumatic experiences of my ministry with people in their last few hours who have suddenly, despite the pain and agony of dying of cancer, are now having an existential crisis of have I believed enough? Have I got enough faith? Um, have I truly repented? And as you say, it's this narcissistic um, vortex that absolutely destroys them it's almost it's almost like they've entered hell um and and it it i i i you know i i actually feel absolutely traumatized having mm -hmm. dealt with it it's about it's a, it's about five or six times in my ministry i've i've been through this and because they the because the angst is so intense still it's almost impossible to deal with because there isn't time to deconstruct a yeah. lifetime of, and they've held it. They've held it all in tension until the moment when they're about to step over the pre pre precipice. And um, I, you know, I, as I say, it's some of the most traumatic stuff I've dealt with in my ministry because they've died in that. They've died into that. Yeah, it's very awful. Different, very it's awful. Different people have a sense of being surrounded by the angels and the archangels and being carried away by love you know and you know the people who reach out and say oh here's my mum it's time for me mm -hmm. to go then i mean it's completely you know or, or, or have a sense of jesus coming and yeah. taking them right it's very different right entering into a, into the abyss it's just um it's incredibly destructive we we've done awful things to people by um locating paul's doctrine of faith in soteriology yeah. rather than what i would call appropriation rather than assurance yeah it's it's our faith is meant to be a gift that assures us yeah. and uh no I, I relate exactly to what you're saying peter and it it really does have tragic consequences we need to be honest about this this is where this reading goes yeah. and you know young my young students struggle with assurance mm -hmm. and I, I i often ask them few classes into the course who put your hand up if you're saved be really sure mm. i'm in a divinity school for crying out loud these <laughs> kids are paying a lot of money to be yeah. there and i only ever get sort of maximum two-thirds with their hands up wow and some of those are not sure and that is that is the flips that's the tragedy you know already manifesting and I'm, it's like the Lord does not want you worrying about your relationship. Uh, he, he wants you re resting secure and worrying about other people. That's <laughs> why sitting around agonizing over your own uh, insecurity. He wants you opened out to the, to the worries of the people around you. How can you get on with this good work around you if you're really gripped by this terror in and of yourself. I mean, it's so sad. And and there was we had to we had to schedule a second remedial emergency Zoom meeting 
after my last class on Paul to address all the personal issues that the students were having as I tried to tell them God loves you, it's going to save you, kind of in spite of what you do. And, and this, this, my, my wonderful TAs who've been on this journey took, took this class and they said it was one of the most emotional things they've ever done because they were the students were crying, breaking down and crying because they were moving beyond the mortal terror that you have just described, Peter. Yeah. They were literally stepping over the threshold into the God really loves me and is not going to let me go. Yeah. And well, that's good like, news. <laughs> it's, a, it's an amazing story, Douglas, because you've actually got a cross-section of divinity students, you know, and I think we also, and what Peter's describing, mm. we're often talking about people who've been in churches all their lives. Yeah. What more does this mean for those outside the church? And you hear people say things like, I wish I had your faith or I yeah. wish mm. I could have a faith. And it's because right. they think of faith as cognitive assent. They think they have to believe in a certain things enough and they're just honest. And sometimes <laughs> I, I hope right. many of the people who are listening to this podcast, are, I hope are outside the church, but I, I have this sneaky fear sometimes that, that, people in church are just less honest than those outside because if you're buying into faith as cognitive assent then and you're not talking about your doubts and you and you think you have to maintain a facade then then you're probably being less honest than those outside the church who are saying right. I wish I could have your faith. I mean, it's all based on the wrong premise. That's what we're saying here. That, that yeah, it's actually yeah. that's not. It's actually about the faithfulness of Christ. All mm. of that's on the wrong premise, and yet people go all their lives trying to sustain that premise. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I couldn't agree more. Yeah, yeah. it's exactly right. <laughs> so much we could talk about here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I guess there is still this this voice in the back of even my head. I notice that. Um, you know, we've been doing this podcast and exploring this stuff for four years, but the still somewhere early on in my childhood, I came across the idea somehow that there could be a punishing God, that there could be a bad result for not doing well enough in life. And I mean, these messages are all culturally reinforced, you know, that, that if you don't do the right things, you won't have a good life. So that does seem to be, it seems at surface level to be the shape of this universe, and so your your reading, Douglas, is that that's almost Paul is almost trying to abolish that way of thinking. He's his writing is is actually has been used to create it, but he was actually trying to get rid of that. Yeah, he he was saying something very very different, um, which is um, he he did think you had this belief, but it it, it wasn't uh, you have to kind of generate this belief for yourself. For Paul, there's this relationship with God. It's real. It's alive. The Holy Spirit is at work in our communities and, and in our lives. And, and so he's writing to people. When he, when he, when he writes these texts, he's, he is writing to people who he, he's pretty confident do have a kind of a high degree of confidence. What he's saying to them is, do you believe that Jesus is Lord God raised him from the dead? And these people do. And so what he says is, hey, you're on track for glory. These other folks that are coming in with all these additional demands, trying to trying to frighten you, trying to make you do things that you're worried about, trying to, yeah, basically frighten you to another form of the gospel. Um, you can just ignore them. You can just chill. You can relax. You're okay. Um, because your faith is a sign that you are already bearing the image of Christ. And Jesus had faith, and then 
died, buried, resurrected. He's already there. Your faith is a sign that you are literally glued into this person. You are grafted onto him. And what has happened to him already is guaranteed for you. I, I sometimes say it's like being on an escalator. You're on a huge, long escalator. And there's a, there's a huge party taking place on the balcony up top. And you look up and Jesus is going up the escalator and then he's at the party, right? And then all of a sudden you look around and you're on the escalator. You're not at the party yet, but you just stand on the escalator and you're going to be there. It's guaranteed. You don't actually have to do anything. You just get popped off the top. And that's, you got to feel good about that, right? I mean, you're on the escalator, you're going to the party, Jesus at the party. I feel good about it. <laughs> there's, there is actually just near the cathedral in, um, in Brisbane, there's a very long escalator. Peter, you, you might know the one I'm talking about. It's a, uh, on Queen Street, just down below the cathedral. It's the longest escalator I think I've ever seen in my life. And so it's giving me a very helpful mental image. <laughs> we have to reenact this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we have one of those uh, flash mobs, Paul's true doctrine of faith, flash mob. <laughs> it does end up at a restaurant, so it's a good, a very good metaphor. Oh, yeah. Wonderful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and I, I suppose it is about that. It, again, it's it, the escalator analogy as well suggests this movement that you know you are you are caught up in this flow. You are caught up in something taking you forward, and um, you know you the escalator isn't moving forward because you are thinking the right things or doing the right things. The escalator is just always moving forward, and it, I guess again it's one of those many moments. I sometimes make this joke. It's one of those many moments where I realize, oh, this is why they called it good news. Right. <laughs> 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 it you is know, good news. Yes. So, look, following on from that that good news, I'd love to, and I mean, I know we've, we've sort of covered um, maybe how you get to this, but I'd love to, to hear it in a bit more depth, Douglas. As I said at the start, you, you do write that Paul would be an advocate for same-sex marriage in today's culture. How do you, what, what, what leads you to that? Well, I mean, ideally you track through a few chapters of theology in the book first to get to this point. Um, but what I think really matters to Paul, cutting a long, long story short, what I think we learn from Paul is that we're, we're on track for glory. And you go, well, what is it we're on track for? What's God's plan for the universe? And he really tells us and texts like Romans 8 29 we we all we will all bear the image of the resurrected Jesus and then we get gathered together into this fellowship the communion of saints which will be very very loving covenantal joyful interpersonal communion so our destiny is a certain sort of relationality and our destiny is also necessarily God's plan for creation, a certain sort of relationality. And locking into the relationality that the Holy Spirit is trying to draw us into, that Christ really came to draw us back into, that's at the heart of almost everything that Paul says, almost everything. And that should be at the heart of everything he says. Um, ethical injunctions and challenges on the basis of the summons to loving relationality that's what we're being called to do 
And that generates, um, I think, an account of marriage and sexual sexual activity that is powerfully covenantal and relational and loving and committed. It, it generates an account of marriage, but it doesn't generate quite the same level of intensity or pressure vis-a-vis what I would call structural questions to do with structures. And we see that Paul sits lightly to structures when it comes to things like Jewish food laws, Jewish temporal measuring, circumcision, the kind of bodily structural stuff that we're caught up with, which are the vehicles for relationality. Those are now secondary. They're not abandoned, but they're not primary. So you, you can be, God wants you guys to be Australian Christians. Okay. He doesn't want me to be an Australian Christian, but what you do as Australian Christians is entirely valid. He's happy for me to be some sort of hybrid Kiwi American Christian. That's okay where I am. Okay. I don't have to make you into a Kiwi American Christian. You don't have to make me into an Australian Christian, but we are all being summoned to live into this powerful, loving, covenantal relationality. And that's what generates, I think, uh, real challenges to both the left and the right. Mm. (laughs) So if you want rules, Paul says sexual activity, covenant, try and hold those together. Modern culture, no, I'm a little confused on this. Uh, In terms of who gets to be in covenant, Paul today, I think, would say, look, are you in love? Do you want a covenant with one another? That's a marriage. I'm here to perform it. Yeah. There you go. Wow. I love it. I'm glad you like it, Don, because probably both of our constituencies just kind of turned this off, right? And went (laughs) off in disgust. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, but it, it, I think, um, and this is what I really appreciate about your work, Douglas, is, uh, sometimes the criticism labeled at the, you know, I guess the movement that we find ourselves a part of, you know, and, and often unfairly, but is that it is just a bit airy fairy or it's just a, it feels good. You know, this is rigorous stuff. This is rigorously plotting through, you know, this is not what we're just ignoring the stuff we don't like because it makes us feel a bit icky. So let's move forward. Like this is, this is good news that is sort of rigorously built. And, and I suppose that, that to you is, is, um, well, that is your vocation. That is your work that it has to, if it's not rigorous, then, you know, how, how can we move forward with it? Totally agree. And I think, I think just, you know, full disclosure, I'm, I've, I've learned this from people who are a lot smarter than I am. My my view is I'm smart enough to understand when someone's really smart (laughs) and and when they're saying something useful. So I'm a bit of a magpie. So I kind of collect things, but, the, the people I'm getting this from and have, who have taught me, yeah, they're brilliant. They're very, very brilliant. And they're very, very devout. They're the sorts of scholars, and you notice this after a while, Jesus is more important than the scholarship. Mm. The scholarship's still important, but Jesus is number one. Yeah. yeah. So Alan Torrance in the Bardian tradition, Stanley Howas, yeah. uh, Willie Jennings. These are These are very, very brilliant and devout people. And I've, I've learned a lot from them. Yeah. Well, as, as we move towards wrapping the conversation up, Douglas, I'd love to ask you 
um, what is maybe a prominent question on the minds of so many in in our faith tradition. You know, we it seems that every uh, every person in the faith tradition is having these conversations about, oh, what's the future of our tradition? Um, you know, it seems that the world has seen the current representation of Christianity and decided they're not really that interested. And, you know, you we know, probably all... yeah, well, yes, exactly. In many instances, I'm not interested. <laughs> yeah. In many instances, absolutely rightfully so. Um, but, you know, if, if Paul was navigating almost the early church, if he was the one sort of guiding us, um, you know, back then, how we can live this out in community together. What do you think Paul would say into this context we are in today um, about the way forward? Yeah, yeah. Well, that's a great question. Um, what does the future hold? The Lord knows. Um, I I find that one of the one of the strange things about doing all this hard work on Paul is I find it personally very challenging. <laughs> I kind of I end up somewhere on the basis of what I think he's saying. And it's like, I'm not really doing that yes. or thinking that. And one of the things I think he wants us to do is to become focused on the particular relationships and friendships and networks that we're actually in and realize how important those are. Mm. And the gospel and the church begins in these authentic, relationships that, that we, we're, we're meant to be in and meant to nurture and start and build over time. It's in, it's in Colin Gunton, um, who taught me a lot. Um, he, he uses the word particularity a lot. God is in the, the details. And I think that the Holy Spirit is drawing us uh, and, and drawing people all over the world into these little detailed relationships. And media and the big picture missed this but the spirit is at work <laughs> and yeah. you meet people that are in these unnoticed corners of society doing amazing work yeah. and amazing amazing churches are springing up yeah in different places and if in a way you know we're not going to save the world and we're not going to fix it but thanks be to god that's already happened and, and we're just summoned like the centurion to kind of do do what we've been asked to do. <laughs> Focus on the task in hand, which 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 hopefully is, is manageable. And and if we're following our instructions and, and, and bedding into these relationships and maybe being nudged into some unnoticed corners, I, I think that's what the Lord wants us to do. That cycles back into your opening comments about embodiment. It's uh, yes, it's really yes. about being who we are in our place and yes, having relationships yes. that matter and being formed through relationship. Yeah. Yes, yes. I, I I absolutely love what you're saying about the particularity in those relationships. It's what I think is why I love my job. I love parish yeah. work. This idea mm -hmm. local parishes. And yep. the actual, you see it, see it, you're actually doing it. And that doing, I think people, we've lost that association with doing with St. Paul. I think Paul was always 
for, for doing for the for the movement of the relationships not just for sort of intellectual for that faith idea that we're you know kind of jettisoning as a cognitive ascent it actually is a lived thing when it's lived through yeah. relationships and that you know that lived through covenanting relationships you know always whether you know marriage not as contract but as covenant too you know how do you actually which is a much higher bar you know and and thinking and i, I really like the fact that in this podcast you've teased out that it's the structures that that paul is is saying well those those things don't matter but what does matter it's not that he's not into works you know what does matter i mean he's the man who wrote the fruits of the spirit you know love joy peace patience right. generous right. self-control all of those things try living that out in your individual particular relationships it's no yeah, low right. bar <laughs> <laughs> That's very tough. Yeah. yeah exactly yeah well you've got it i i don't need to come to australia anymore you're underway <laughs> <laughs> so Douglas, if I shared a meal with Paul then, it sounds like him and I might actually get on despite my life's prejudices. <laughs> I hope so. I hope so. Yeah, I, I sort of do live in terror of getting to heaven and finding out he was a bit of a jerk, but I actually no, I think he was a cool guy. <laughs> Well, look, uh, it's a lovely place to, to land the podcast there. We should also mention, keep an eye on the On The Way Facebook page. Um, there is likely to be a course run in our part of the world to explore this a little bit further in your work, Douglas. Um, and I think an eight-week course is currently the plan. So if this uh, if this is really engaged, if this has provoked something, um, would that be the best way? So you think we'll just we'll post on the On The Way Facebook page? I think we'll put it up there and people can find us there. Yeah, yep, absolutely. Well, Douglas, it's been, a, it's been great to share this conversation today. The book is Pauline Dogmatics, The Triumph of God's Love. Thank you so much for your, your time. Oh, thanks so much for having me. You're, you've been an awesome crew to engage with and may the Lord bless you. <laughs>